more than 1,100 federal statutory and regulatory exclusions affecting legitimate married same-sex couples. Uh, secondly, uh, the court, at least the majority, found the basis for the discrimination kind of fishy. And that's one area where the federalism analysis played in. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, does too, right? Uh, no, I don't write a blog called May It Please the Court, Craig, uh, but uh, I, well, do, I do don't. write a blog and it's called Law Sites. I also write another blog called Media Law, and I'm coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, online practice management software program for attorneys at goclio.com. Well, uh, this week, Craig, we're going to talk about the pair of uh, opinions out of the Supreme Court last week. Uh, that established uh, major victories for the gay rights movement in this country. Uh, one ruling that a federal law prohibiting uh, same-sex couples from uh, entitlement to federal benefits uh, was unconstitutional. Uh, and in another case in which they declined to uh, decide a case from California, which had the effect of leaving in place uh, same-sex uh, marriage law there and letting it take effect. Both of those decisions came out June 26. It was a, a big day for gay rights, and uh, we're going to talk about the legal details behind these decisions and what they might have to do with the future of same-sex marriage. Bob, today we're going to be speaking with two law professors. Both of them are experts in constitutional law, and their opinions have been featured in the SCOTUS blog discussing the Supreme Court DOMA decision. First, I'd like to introduce Bill Eskridge, a Yale law professor with a focus in statutory interpretation. From 1990 to 1995, he represented a same-sex couple suing for recognition of their marriage. Since then, he's published a number of works covering the political framework of equal treatment of sexual and gender minorities. And the historical component of his book, Gay Law, was the basis for, of an amicus brief that he drafted for the Cato Institute and much of the court's and dissenting opinions analysis in Lawrence v. Texas, the decision that made same-sex sexual activity legal in every U.S. state. In addition to... Uh uh, Bill Eskridge, we're going to also have joining us today, Harvard Law Professor Mark Tushnet. Professor Tushnet specializes in constitutional law in theory with a focus on examining the practice of judicial review in the United States and worldwide. He writes in the area of constitutional history and the development of civil liberties in the United States. Former law clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, Professor Tushnet is known for being a critical and controversial analyst of constitutional theory and for his research regarding uh, such uh, significant, uh, in some cases, controversial cases as Brown versus Board of Education or Roe versus Wade. He's also a frequent contributor to the legal blog, Balkanization. Uh, so thanks for joining us, uh, Professor Tushnet. Thank you. Well, Mark, let's start with you. And um, we read in the Harvard Crimson publication that you predicted DOMA, the DOMA decision to be made based on the issues of federalism and constitutionalism of same-sex marriage. How did you fare? Um, reasonably well, I think. Uh, 
the federalism theme was more subdued than it might have been as and as some people thought. The federalism idea was that uh, Congress was doing something quite extraordinary in adopting a nationwide definition of marriage dealing with over a thousand federal statutes uh, and marriage definitions are mostly left to the states. And, and Justice Kennedy's uh, opinion said that uh, the fact that Congress is doing something so uh, unusual raised questions about its motivation for doing it. And it, it basically, the equal protection argument was that Congress was uh, motivated by hostility to uh, gays and lesbians in enacting the Defense of Marriage Act. and simply acting on that kind of hostility is not permitted by the Constitution. So both themes were there in Justice Kennedy's opinion. Pretty clearly, the stronger one was the disparagement of uh, gays and lesbians. Bill Eskridge, uh, let's bring you into the conversation. And, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, was this a, what was the constitutional basis for this decision? Was it a constitutional decision at all, or, or was it really just a moral decision? Well, the Windsor case striking that Defense of Marriage Act, as Mark just said, uh, it's certainly a constitutional decision. Uh, it rested upon the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, it, it did not rest upon uh, the lack of congressional power. That's usually the federalism ground by which the Supreme Court strikes down or upholds federal legislation. There seemed to be no debate among the justices uh, that Congress had the enumerated power to adopt definitions of marriage and so on and so forth. Uh, but what Congress didn't have the power to do, according to a majority of the court, uh, was to pass such a discriminatory statute uh, that, as far as the court could determine, was grounded upon animus, traditional prejudice rather than some kind of serious effort to advance the public interest. So it violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, which has been interpreted by the court to have an equal protection component as well. Um, and indeed, in the companion case to Brown that Mark Tushnet has written about, the Supreme Court said that uh, the equal protection analysis in Brown can also be applied uh, to regulations that Congress, the District of Columbia, has adopted. And so that kind of analysis was ultimately fatal in the DOMA case the other day. Well, how does DOMA affect same-sex couples? Does it have any bearing on heterosexual marriages? Well, DOMA was um, pushed by President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich um, as a measure that they claimed uh, was to defend traditional marriage. So the arguments that were made by the Democratic president and the Republican Congress back in 1996 were that a statute to disrespect and exclude lesbian and gay couples from at least federal recognition of their legal marriages um, was to protect the marriages of heterosexual couples. Uh, now, what's interesting particularly about the court's decision in Windsor uh, is that the court, and indeed the dissenting justices, have almost nothing to say about the original rationale of DOMA. Uh, there's very little discussion of... Uh, a lot of evidence, including evidence that Darren Spadali and I published in our book, Gay Marriage for Better or for Worse, um, there's a lot of evidence that recognition of same-sex marriage has either no effect 
or at least um, a positive effect on marriage rates, divorce rates, and so on and so forth in both Europe and the United States. And I think the balance of opinion is that there is not one ounce of legitimate evidence supporting President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich's view uh, that recognizing lesbian couples committed raising children is going to harm heterosexual marriage or hurt heterosexual couples in any way. So Windsor was, I think, a great victory for lesbian and gay couples. Uh, It does not benefit all of them. Uh, It only benefits lesbian and gay couples uh, who are married um, uh, as recognized by the federal government. And that is going to differ perhaps from program to program. we do not know at this point whether it will help any civil union couples, uh, and it will not help couples who are committed to one another but have not engaged in some kind of legal ceremony. So the ultimate effect of Windsor is, is a big one. Uh, exactly how it will play out is going to be determined uh, by the Obama administration in the next um, several months or a year. And for that matter, it didn't really, I mean, I've heard it said that this case struck down DOMA. It didn't struck down all of DOMA. In fact, the portion of DOMA, which allows the states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states, uh, still stands. Yes, that was not even an issue in the Windsor case. Um, Section 2 of DOMA, which is exactly what you're referring to, uh, has not been adjudicated by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it's not considered as important a discrimination um, by legal experts, in large part because uh, the federal full faith and credit clause has not been interpreted uh, to require, say, Alabama to recognize uh, all Massachusetts marriages. Uh, the main objection, and this has always been the main objection to state non-recognition, has not been the full faith and credit objection, it's been the equal protection objection. And that is that uh, same-sex marriage is a matter of constitutional equality under the 14th Amendment. And of course, that was the other case, the Hollingsworth case, handed down the same day as the DOMA case, uh, where that issue, the Supreme Court ducked because the debate within the court all, all went off on the interpretation of Article Three standing and the legitimacy of the appeal to the Supreme Court by the supporters of Proposition 8. Um, So we now go back to the states, and uh, there's state-by-state litigation, legislation, uh, and all sorts of other activity that will probably bring another Hollingsworth kind of case. In other words, a 14th Amendment challenge to a state marriage discrimination probably in the next couple of years, two or three years. Do either of you see any type of, do you see any movement of the Supreme Court toward elevating sexual preference to a, uh, to a civil right along the lines of Board, Brown versus Board of Education? Uh, every time the court has addressed a major gay rights issue in the past, I guess, couple of decades, starting, I suppose, with Romer and Evans, which is in the 1990s, they all, the major opinions have all been written by Justice Kennedy. And in each one of them, he's been very careful not to specify that um, sexual preference kinds of things are to be treated in the same way by the courts as gender classifications or racial classifications. He's been, I think it's pretty clear, deliberately fuzzy about 
what lawyers tend to talk about as the standard of review that's being applied. Um, I think the reason for that is a disagreement within the court about how you should think about these questions uh, and, frankly, uh, leaving things open for a future court to take that next step and say that discrimination based on sexual orientation is as problematic as these other uh, other recognized forms of discrimination. Um, the, uh, I think people who are watching the development of this litigation um, uh, routinely commented that the speed of the change in uh, attitude about uh, anti-gay discrimination is quite astonishing. Um, and my guess is that Justice Kennedy sort of is glimpsing into the future and seeing a time when it would not be all that controversial uh, among lots of people to say that anti-gay discrimination is just as problematic as the discrimination based on gender. Uh, there's a, another way of looking at this issue. Uh, and that was actually suggested 40 years ago by Thurgood Marshall, whom Mark clerked for. Uh, and Marshall, in a pair of dissents back in the early 1970s, said that here's what the Supreme Court actually does in equal protection cases, uh, and put aside what language and doctrine and jargon they actually employ. Uh, they look at, um, number one, what is the harm to the group that's being excluded? Uh, is this an important exclusion? Uh, is it something that's merely economic? Uh, second, they, they look at what's the basis for the exclusion? Is it kind of a fishy classification or a fishy basis? Or is it something that's fairly standard and usually associated with productive state policy? Uh, and then the court, according to Justice Marshall, normally will look at, well, how weighty is the government justification for this particular discrimination against this particular group. Uh, and I think the court, although it doesn't cite Justice Marshall, uh, has in the last 20 years moved away from uh, this uh, fetishism which the court enjoyed for many decades, a couple of decades, about the level of review that you've got to decide is sex a suspect classification or a quasi-suspect. They ultimately decided that. But they're just not very interested in deciding that anytime soon for sexual orientation. And so instead, they've been going case by case. And I think thematically, they've been following this broad approach that was laid out by Justice Marshall. And in Windsor, uh, this was a pretty weighty interest. More than 1,100 federal statutory and regulatory exclusions affecting legitimate married same-sex couples pretty big deal. Uh, secondly, uh, the court, at least the majority, found the basis for the discrimination kind of fishy. And that's one area where the federalism analysis played in. You know, why has Congress gone out to pick on this minority group to do this unprecedented kind of exclusionary statute? And that was kind of fishy to Justice Kennedy. Uh, and then thirdly, the court was obviously unimpressed with the government interest, that is there really a public interest in excluding these committed lesbian and gay couples, many of whom are raising children? 
Um, and I think that was actually very significant, and it, it reflects a somewhat different approach that the court has taken in the last 20 years to issues like abortion, gay rights, and whatnot. Um, though it still uses um, very rigid doctrinal formulations in other areas, particularly the First Amendment. And we, we of course, have seen it in the uh, affirmative action area as well. Bill, we need to uh, interrupt you for just a moment before we move on to our next segment. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Robert Ambrosi. And if I could just ask Professor Tushnet, we've been sort of alluding here to the... the, the, uh not more than alluding, we're talking about some of the comparisons to other civil rights cases that have come along. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I think perhaps the, the, some saw the attorneys for the, uh, for the gay rights movement in this case as, as perhaps overreaching and what they were hoping to accomplish here. And yet, already since the decision has come out, we're hearing attorneys talk about how the, the precedent, how this precedent is going to be used in future cases to uh, further establish gay rights in this country. So, Mark Tishon, I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Is, is this kind of the nose in, under the camel's tent that's, that's going to be used uh, in other cases? And if so, how will it be used? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are worth saying. And, and the two cases are different in, in connection with the question you're asking. With respect to the Windsor case and the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, um, we know that that statute is no longer effective, and what that means is that the federal government has to provide benefits to gay and lesbian couples who are married pursuant to state laws, or actually laws outside the U.S., as Winters was. We know that, but uh, there'll be a lot of going back and forth on precisely what that means. So just to give you an example of the kind of issue that lawyers are now going to be working on on behalf of their clients. One of the major federal programs says we'll give benefits to people who are married if their marriage is recognized in the state where they got the license. So uh, even if they move to Virginia, say, if you're married in New York and move to Virginia, you'll get some of the benefits. 
Other programs say, no, we'll measure whether you're married by the place you are currently living. And so if you're married in New York and, and then moved to Virginia, you don't get the benefit. Uh, there'll be a lot of litigation trying to work out those kinds of details, many of which are quite significant because some of these programs provide quite substantial benefits or, or uh, opportunities. So that's one track, and that's just working out what the implications of the absence of DOMA is. Uh, the other track is um, litigation seeking to do what happened in California, that is, establishing as a matter, through litigation, as a matter of constitutional entitlement, uh, marriage equality. Now, the Supreme Court didn't actually say anything directly uh, on the marriage equality issue. Justice Scalia, in his dissent in the Windsor case, said, well, look, if you read the majority opinion, you can basically pick out the passages that you can use to say denial of gay marriage violates uh, equality ideas. And, and he may well be right about that. Lawyers or uh, couples who want to become married are using uh, Windsor uh, as the basis for these new challenges. I, I guess I saw that one was filed in Pennsylvania yesterday, and I read something about one being about to be filed in Virginia. And those are, those are direct challenges to the exclusion of uh, gays and lesbians from the entitlement to be married. And those cases will proceed. As Bill said, it'll probably take a while for them to be fully resolved, uh, even at the lower court level, and then they have to get up to the Supreme Court. And so it will be a few years before we know, before the court's going to have an opportunity to deal with those questions. And uh, we don't know what the composition of the court will be when those cases get there. Yeah, there's actually a couple, uh, there are several cases that are ahead of the game. Uh, the Pennsylvania case is very recent, uh, but there already are cases in Hawaii and Nevada where there are district court judgments rejecting marriage equality claims. Uh, and both Hawaii and Nevada do recognize civil unions in the case of Hawaii, domestic partnerships in the case of Nevada. But marriage equality is, is now the demand. And those cases uh, will proceed probably on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. But Mark and I are still in agreement. Uh, it might still take a couple of years for the cases to get a decision out of the Ninth Circuit and be ripe for appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. There also is a case in Michigan, uh, which is going to trial. So there are a number of other cases that have already been brought that were already in the pipeline. And certainly the Supreme Court's disposition in both Windsor and Hollingsworth is simply going to accelerate those cases and probably trigger the filing of more cases. Now, by the way, Justice Scalia said all this 10 years ago. Justice Scalia is kind of the Cassandra of the Supreme Court on these issues. He said 10 years ago in Lawrence versus Texas uh, that if you take seriously the Supreme Court's constitutional uh, decisions in Romer and Evans, which was the Colorado Initiative case, and then Lawrence, the Texas sodomy case, Scalia says, well, same-sex marriage ought to be next. And he cited Canada, which is where Edie Windsor was ultimately married. 
And then it was um, found in the lower courts that New York would have recognized her marriage. So gay marriage is coming very, very swiftly uh, and no longer on little cat's feet. Uh, So I would say uh, that Windsor and Hollingsworth are most significant, not by anything that they say, because as Chief Justice Roberts pointed out in Windsor, the opponents of marriage equality can cite some of the federalism discussion. Uh, And Justice Kennedy has some language in Windsor that the federal government normally lets the states experiment and come up with their own local regime. And the Chief Justice says, well, why doesn't that support striking down DOMA, but allowing state experimentation for the time being? So there's plenty of language uh, to cite on both sides. Uh, I think the underlying thing, and again, this is Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, in my opinion, is the great legal genius of the 20th century. Uh, And I think he saw it all very clearly. And I think what Thurgood Marshall would would have seen were he still alive on the marriage equality movement is what he foresaw in the civil rights movement. Uh, And that is uh, politics of precedent. That once you have a number of states, and now they're, they're going to be, by the end of the year 13, California has already started issuing marriage licenses. Um, once you have marriage licenses issued by a substantial number of couples, there's increasing evidence uh, that this is a serious commitment on the part of the couples. Many of them are raising children. They're doing it just as capably or incapably as straight couples. And that a lot of the purported justifications, such as President Clinton's I'm going to defend marriage, or the recent Prop 8 proponents' arguments, or the arguments by um, some members of Congress in the DOMA case, that we need to encourage responsible procreation by those rascally heterosexuals uh, by keeping lesbians out of civil marriage. Uh, The arguments started out weak, and now they border on the ridiculous if they have not already traversed that line. They're almost satires of legal argumentation. And I think that's the reason uh, why uh, marriage equality is galloping along. Uh, It really doesn't hurt America. It doesn't hurt straight couples. Um, It's a good thing. It's a nice aspiration for lesbian and gay couples. It does have benefits. And I might add that DOMA imposes a lot of obligations on married couples. I mean, once it's been struck down, uh, lesbian and gay couples now have a lot of obligations. Edie Windsor got a tax break, but a lot of lesbian and gay couples are going to pay more federal income taxes because DOMA's been struck down. Good, fine. A lot of lesbian and gay officials will now be subject to conflict of interest rules that impose burdens on them. Good, fine. I think these are good burdens uh, that should be imposed on lesbian and gay couples exactly the same as legitimately married straight couples. So I think that's where we're heading. The train is, is not only out of the station, but it's sort of you know, getting much closer to the destination, uh, which again, Thurgood Marshall envisaged for um, uh, people of color, and that is striking down, as the Supreme Court did in Loving versus Virginia in 1967, all of the remaining bars to different race marriages. And there's certainly a very good chance, um, with Mark's caveat, depending on the composition of the court, that in a, a two, three, or even four years, that we'll have a similar opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court for marriage equality for lesbian and gay couples. 
Well, we just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up with your closing thoughts. And Mark, we'll like to turn it over to you so you can give your closing thoughts to our listeners and also your contact information so they can reach out and contact you if they'd like to. Mark? Um, sure. Uh, the, my closing thought is just a way of talking about uh, how I think about the court, which is mostly to see it as situated in politics. And so I am, uh, for people who are interested in these kinds of issues, uh, the politics of the next Supreme Court appointment are going to be very interesting, which means that the politics of the next election are going to be very important for the direction of constitutional law. I I talk about that in a forthcoming book that will be published in in October uh, called In the Balance, Law and Politics on the Roberts Court. Uh, which gives my sort of overall view of what's been happening on, on the Roberts Court. If people are interested in contacting me, I can be reached at mtushnet at law.harvard.edu. And Bill, for you, your closing thoughts and your contact information as well? Well, my closing thoughts are, are more about the social movement. I think the U.S. Supreme Court is fine. Uh, it's certainly a, 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 an important institution and so forth. Uh, But that's not really the story. The story, it seems to me, is the small-c constitution of the United States. And Canada, bless Canada, uh, as being the pioneer country in North America. Canada deserves our gratitude, uh, and uh, Canada deserves a great deal of respect for leading the way. Uh, And in Canada, same-sex marriage has been a fine success. Uh, legitimating lesbian and gay unions and the children that they are raising. And I think we're going to see the same thing in the United States. Um, It's going to be an important movement toward the constitution of equality. Uh, And I do think whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately seals the deal, and that does depend to some extent on judicial appointments and when the case comes to the court, I think the end is already here. Uh, is that in the next 10 years, it's going to be increasingly intolerable, uh, both politically and judicially, to accept systematic inequality for lesbian and gay couples. And uh, at least in the race context, the role of the Supreme Court was to clean up the outlier jurisdictions that were just too blinded by bigotry to repeal their anti-miscegenation laws. And I hope the Supreme Court will be able to fulfill that same function in the marriage cases. Uh, I think the broader issue, however, uh, is the future of marriage. And the anti-gay sentiments that President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich and all of the supporters of the Defense of Marriage Act uh, articulated in 1996 have now been shown to be a lavender herring. Uh, And it's really time for serious policymakers uh, to focus on what are the actual problems with relationships and marriage in the United States, which include spousal abuse child abuse, lack of paying alimony, and so on. Uh, And to stop using um, minorities as scapegoats and pinatas to avoid talking about the real public policy problems. And so I do invite traditionalists as well as progressives to focus on state regulation of relationships uh, without all of the demagoguery that President Clinton and Speaker Gingrich introduced with the Defense of Marriage Act. Justice Kennedy has buried it, uh, and I think that's been good for America as well as good for the law. Great. And how can our listeners reach out to you if they'd like to discuss this with you further? 
Well, I'm at the Yale Law School, uh, and my email is william.eskridge, that's E-S-K-R-I-D-G-E, at yale.edu. And I think I have a website, et cetera, et cetera, on the Yale, let's see, I think law.yale.edu is the Yale Law School's wonderful website. Great. And thank you both very much for being on the program. You'll sit tight for just a moment. We'll be right back to you. We have uh, come to this point in the program where Bob and I share our closing thoughts. It's a newer addition to the show. We each have only 30 seconds to share our final thoughts before the buzzer goes off. So, Bob, on your mark, go. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's not not quite fair to put me after uh, such, such well-spoken guests who, who stated this so well. I, I mean, I, I think the significance here is... Uh, the broader civil rights significance uh, of where we're headed, the, the the mindset of the country overall is changed dramatically uh, about gay rights. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm in Massachusetts. I I happen to sit through a, a long legislative hearing yesterday uh, where one of the issues was uh, I'm out of time. Yeah, Go ahead. you are. But it- <laughs> And here in California, you know, there was great celebration when the uh, Doman decisions came down and many of my friends uh, rushed their thanks to me because last night I spent uh, the evening at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that lifted the ban here in uh, California for gay marriage after the Doman decisions came down and was able to pass those thanks along to the members of the judiciary who've done that. And you know, it's been a groundswell, and I think it's. I think Bill and Mark are, are both correct in that it's going to be continuing, and uh, we'll win. Thank yeah, you. hey, bu- buzzer be damned! I was just, I just want to say. I mean, the, uh, next, uh, next issue here is 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 transgender rights. Uh, there was a, there's Massachusetts uh, passed a, a significant law last year uh, recognizing the the civil rights of transgendered residents here. There's further legislation pending now to further refine that, uh, and and uh, that's a key issue as well. So. Uh, thanks a lot to our guests, to Bill Eskridge and, and Mark Kushnet for taking the time to be with us and discuss these issues and share their thoughts. We really appreciate it from both of you. Thank you very much. Happy to be able to do it. It's been a fantastic discussion. I'm sure that this podcast will get an awful lot of downloads. It's uh, both very wonderful contributions to the program. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Join us again next week for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.